Good evening. Welcome to Spaceman Pod. Uh, my name is Ian Edmund. I've got a Spaceman 3 website at spaceman3.co.uk. And my friend, Mark. Uh, I am Mark Lassels. I've been a Spaceman 3 fan for uh, well over 30 years. And I used to run Runcible Records, which uh, sold rare music and specialised in Spaceman 3. And we're going to talk a little more about what we're planning to do with the podcast and why we're bothering with any of this shortly. But I thought we could start off by just talking about how we discovered Spaceman 3. For me, it, I was a bit of a latecomer, really. It wasn't until uh, the end of 1992 that I remember my wife and I looking through the enemy's end of year poll. And out of all the albums that we thought we'd be interested in, uh, Laser Guided Melodies was the only one that I noticed. So I thought, well, yeah, I probably would be interested in that, but I don't really know anything about it. Uh, it was my birthday in February. And so uh, it arrived as a birthday present shortly afterwards. And uh, very quickly, I realized that this was something that I, I needed to check out in a bit more detail. So, you know, thankfully, fairly early on in the days of Spiritualized, there wasn't a huge amount to track down. Um, managed, although, having said that, even by that point, it was getting hard enough to find uh, the first single. That was already collector's prices there. But, you know, got them in and was, was really excited and interested. Uh, um, I don't know if anyone remembers uh, the chart show that was on ITV at Saturday lunchtimes. Uh, around that time, I mean, there was, uh, I think I did remember seeing Spiritualized video on there, but then also there was a Spectrum video. They, they played um, a bit of the video for How You Satisfy Me. And now I was completely <clears throat> ignorant still at this point, knew nothing about it, but thought, oh, that sounds a bit like Spiritualized. Uh, I think I'll like that as well. Maybe I could buy that that um, EP to sort of check them out too. And, and again, thought that was great, but it wasn't until a bit later when um, I was with some friends doing some shopping in London, where there was a, a, a very strange, like a very temporary um, record shop um, by um, Tottenham Court Road Tube. It was quite near to the Astoria. Of course, all, anyone who's, who knows that part of London will know that the Astoria and all of that area has now been redeveloped as part of um, of Crossrail. So not there anymore. It's a bit sad. I used to love the Astoria. I mean, it was a complete dive, but mm. I, I really loved it. Um, Hanway Street, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think you're that was right. the little street behind with a couple of collectors' record shops. Oh, was that the one behind what was the Virgin Megastore? Somewhere there, yeah. Yeah. Now they were the proper ones, but this was a bit more like it was just upstairs above a regular shop, and it seemed to be like the CDs had been um, imported ones that needed to be got rid of. They all had very strange, big, chunky security tags on them, the sort of things that will set off an alarm when you walk out the shop with the the old sort. <laughs> metal um, patterns on them um, and they had copies of recurring and they had loads of them huge numbers of them and it wasn't the fire recurring it was uh, the dedicated one that wasn't really a UK thing it was more of a European thing so I think these were largely imports mm. not easy to find those now well yeah I was very lucky uh, and for you I mean that was my version of recurring for a while um, so I think that was probably my first realization that these these two bands that I now just recently liked had come from the same place and um I know lots of people will probably not have recurring down as their typical the Spaceman 3 album and in many people's cases not their favorite because it diverged a bit from the earlier sound but I didn't have that context to go on I just thought it was fantastic and it is fantastic obviously 
very much an album of two halves, but that didn't seem to be a problem at all. And there was so much to love on both sides. So that was it really, just carried on investigating backwards. And uh, I remember um, at the time being not tremendously well off, so I couldn't afford to go out. I mean, there's only what, three or four albums to get, but I couldn't rush out and buy them. And I remember going through a period of weeks of uh, just studying them in record shops and then thinking, these enticing titles and oh look on that album suddenly they're they're crediting themselves separately so I had all this history waiting to be accessed that I couldn't quite get at and slowly bit by bit I was able to get them and uh, yeah well you know never look back it was it was just a complete turnaround and then of course I eventually put the pieces together and realised that I had seen Spaceman. You had, in fact, seen them live. Yeah. <laughs> Their last uh, performance. Indeed. I, I went to that Reading Festival and uh, had no idea who they were. And uh, they were playing when I got into the venue. And um, I, I just thought, oh, my God, this is just going to they're just playing the same chord again. And, again. and this is very <laughs> interesting. And we've had to queue up for an hour to get in and it's raining. Um, and was this all a massive mistake? And uh, yeah, oh well, there you go. Can't go back and change anything now. That's the way it works sometimes. Mike, you, you've got a bit more history than well, I. Well, I, uh, I was fortunate in that I did see the Spaceman. Uh, saw them live five times uh, starting in May 88. But uh, the first time I'd ever heard of them was um, would have been sometime in 1987. And uh, I was hanging around with a guy called Phil. I sadly lost touch with, but he was an incredible musical influencer he got me into all kinds of psychedelic music and uh one day he was grumbling that um he damaged the hearing in one of his ears and i asked him what had happened and he sort of looked sheepish and said oh it's a spaceman three gig and i looked at him, i'd never heard of this band i had visions of kind of monstrous great synthesizers and deafening noise to everything else and uh, i was interested and uh I asked him what they sounded like, and he came back with a quote that I'll never forget. He thought for a moment, he said that Spaceman 3 sound like a Hawkwind record that's got stuck. And I was a big, <laughs> big Hawkwind fan at that time, and so obviously my interest was uh, peaked, and uh, I bought uh, Walking with Jesus and uh, played it, which I thought it sounded pretty good. Uh, I did struggle with the... Uh, enormous version of roller coaster on the other side which does go on for a long time with a lot of it on one note and everything and i, I was it really confused me but suddenly out of this chaos comes the tranquility of feel so good which I, i'll never forget it it was like one of those like the curtains opening and the sun coming I, I it was an amazing moment and as a result that's sort of my favorite spaceman three song it's certainly the one that got me into it um and uh, at that time, I was, um, well, I was seeing a lot of bands um, and saw them a few times, blew me away every time. I then went away to Australia, uh, still kind of kept in touch with the music. When I came back, uh, I started to run some more records. Uh, I, because I was such a fan, we started to specialise a little bit. I approached um, Pete Kember, Sonic Boom, at a Spectrum gig in about uh, late 92 and started trading 
stuff with him for uh, well something which has gone on to this day actually still very much in touch with him uh the great thing was because i was such a collector and that he he basically sold us every rare thing that he had uh and anything that i didn't have i kept so my collection just kind of exploded and continues to do so although there's not, not a lot of things left out there i don't think but I, I still keep my eye out but that's about it but uh my enthusiasm is still as it was um, and I still keep collecting and still keep playing the music. Well, I think it's pretty unlikely that there'll be many people listening in who are not already um, the Spaceman 3 enthusiasts. But since this is our first, um, our first uh, episode, just, just do a quick overview. Spaceman 3 um, formed in the early 1980s. Um, exact timings are a little obscure in those days. We're trying to rely on people who uh, who weren't expecting to have to uh, keep their history perfectly transcribed and things are a little fuzzy. Um, but sometimes in the early 80s, certainly by uh, early 1983, there were a few gigs going on. Formed by Sonic Boom, the stage name of Pete Kember. And uh, Jason Pierce, who, of course, has now gone on to be the, the famous one, if you like. Um, original drummer Tim Morris, who was apparently a good person to have in your band. And he was in quite a few local rugby bands because his bedroom was ideal for band practices. And uh, bassist uh, Pete Bain. Pete and uh, Tim left after a little while because Jason had gone to art college in Mason. There didn't seem to be an awful lot going on. Um, but Jason would come back occasionally. And they recruited uh, uh, Natty Brooker as a drummer. Still no bass, though. And they played for a while just as a three-piece with no bass, which made them very unusual uh, in any way, let's face it. But on the local scene, that really stood out. Their influence uh, of the Cramps is worth mentioning there, which originally the Cramps, of course, had no bass player when they started. Absolutely, yes. The band that uh, Tim and Pete had gone off to join, the push um, broke up and uh, Pete Bain rejoined. So Space went back to a four-piece. And it was this lineup that recorded their first album, Sound of Confusion, and carried on touring in the local area. After a while, Natty left and uh, they recruited a new drummer, Sterling Roswell, Roscoe. And things continued locally, occasional gigs in London. They recorded their second album, Perfect Prescription, viewed by many people, I imagine both of us to be their real highlight. Toured extensively in Europe, uh, and especially in 1988. We'll be back to more of that later. After that tour, uh, Roscoe left and Pete Bain left a little bit after that as well. So there's a very much a half-time break in the story at this point. Bit of regrouping, recruited new bass player Will Carruthers and uh, drummer Johnny Mattock. Recorded the album Playing, Playing With Fire, uh, many people's favourite. Although I have a strange blind spot with Playing With Fire, but that's that's one for a future future conversation, I'm sure. Um there's no, uh, there's no Johnny Mantic on that album, of course. Indeed, all, of course, you're drum quite machine. right. Indeed, it's almost entirely a drum machine. I can't believe it's a drum machine tapping those cymbals at the beginning. It's just fine, amazing. It's, uh, <laughs> but there we go. More tours, bigger UK ones. Playing with Fire was a big breakthrough. It got a lot of attention in the mu in the UK music press, and they were suddenly elevated to be a you know being a big player in that uh, alternative enemy melody maker sounds kind of scene. Carried on to big European and UK tours in 1989. Um, but things had started to fall apart a little bit. The relationships within the band weren't what they had been. Uh, people started recording a little more individually. I mean, the credits on Playing With Fire bear that out. 
and um, over the course of 1990, things sort of really fell apart. But there was another album largely recorded, finished off and finally released in early 1991, Recurring, which is like an excellent full stop to, to that whole era, really. And although we have Jason going on to do his work in Spiritualized, still going on to this day, you know, long career there and the most recent albums is fantastic. One of the best ones he's done, I think. And Pete Kemba going on to do various projects, Spectrum being his main band and then a lot of work with um, uh, experimental audio research, which, as its name suggests, is a lot more experimental, bit of an acquired taste. Not everyone's going to be that sympathetic to that. It's not really song-based stuff. And more recently, he's returned to the Sonic Boom name to do another electronic album, but um, a bit more song-based one, and, and, and that's been uh, extremely well-received as well. So I think we hit an era at the moment where... Um, well, from my point of view, I think both of them are, are on a bit of a high, really, compared, well, not makes it sound like I think there's been a problem in the past. But, you know, I, I think the current output is amongst some of the best solo stuff they, they've done for, for a long time. I would agree, yeah. Yeah. So, so why have we bothered to do this sort of thing? Well, as, as Mark was saying with his summary of what it was like to to get into them for himself it's not the sort of um enthusiasm that that's really gone away uh well indeed as i stealing from one of uh jason's lines which i've always used as the hook line for my website you know i have a passion sweet lord and it just won't go away um i don't know what quite it is about spaceman 3 because let's face it musically a lot of it is pretty primitive it's not like it's full of complete finesse and and musical showing off and things like that but i think there is something about it that for the people who it does click with it just gets you on such a deep and fundamental level that it's something you don't want to keep to yourself you you know it's the sort of thing that you want to share with other people and and i think that you know, Mark's had a lot of interesting stuff with the record dealing over the years and all the concerts that we've been to and so on. I think we've got a few things that we can talk about that I hope people will enjoy. And also, I hope that people listening will um, will chip in and, and give their contributions and suggestions for what we could talk about. And, you know, we'd love any contributions that, that people can have, really. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. Um, that, that's the idea of it. Now, I think it's worth saying that um, for people who who know Spaceman 3 a bit, but who are not quite the sad cases that we are with <laughs> all of the detail. What they probably know about Spaceman 3, if you boil it down to two things, is uh, they took a lot of drugs and uh, they argued a lot and they ended up hating each other. And both of those things are true. There's no doubt about it. But it's, it's the emphasis that has been put on all those things as opposed to the music that we really love, which I think we'd like to try and do a little bit if we can to try and rebalance a bit. I, I mean, think that's a good move. Yeah. It's not like we're never going to talk about drugs. Some, it's so central to some of the stories that it's impossible to avoid it. And it's impossible to avoid the fact that there were some conflicts from time to time. But that's just a little part of it, really. You know, that there is so much more to it. And in particular, it's the feelings that just get evoked by some of the music. And we, we just like to um, try and be a bit more positive than the usual spin that's put on Spaceman 3 here and, and celebrate what it is that, that we love about them. 
That's it. If I mean, if the music wasn't any good, we wouldn't be talking about it now. I don't think you could really get a lot of mileage out of those two factors, which is what people tend to remember about the band when there's actually a great deal more. So, well, uh, in that respect, then, Mark, how could you try your best to sum up what it is about Space and Three? I think that there's a lot of the attitude of the guys who made the music comes through the music itself. I think that. Uh, there was a certain um, lack of caring, really, what the press thought about them, what pretty much anybody else thought about them. They had their own singular vision. Uh, and indeed, some of the reviews that came out back then were, were beyond negative. They were, I mean, personally insulting to uh, the mental health of the, uh, of the musicians mm. responsible in some cases. But uh, for me back then, I felt that uh, watching them on stage, they seemed to be pretty much the same individuals as the guys in the audience. And so in that way, there was a real connection uh, just in terms of these were guys who got up in, got up on stage without putting on any fancy clothes. There, there, there was, if you call just having a bank of projector lights, a stage show, it was just light shining, but they didn't do anything flashy. I mean, two of them sat down the first time I saw them, which I, I'd never seen musicians sit down on the stage before. Um, and there was just something that, I don't know, the noise that came out of those speakers just completely enveloped you they were also extremely loud which uh, has to be used carefully because i've seen bands try and produce a barrage of noise and fail spectacularly but every time i saw spaceman three they just got it right uh they're also the only band i know who can leave the stage for half an hour and drench feedback and the audience will still stay standing there hoping for one last morsel of music uh that i've never seen before uh, and quite often they wouldn't come back. So <laughs> you would just be left standing there. But it, I think it's, it's, it's that, not just the sound of the music, but the fact that you seem to be able to hear the personalities of the people who made it come through, uh, both in the noisy music and the quiet music, of which there was a great deal of contrast. Um, I've played people Space in three uh, albums with a lot of the laid back stuff and they've absolutely sort of blissed out think it's the most wonderful thing ever mm. but you play them a blast of starship or uh od catastrophe from one of the early gigs and uh, you know you can clear a room playing that sort of stuff to the wrong people so uh, but for me it just completely connected and i've not been able to shake it off and that's that's kind of it it's it is kind of hard to describe as you say the music is quite primitive there are moments of um almost ugliness when you take a track like things will never be the same which i was used to uh, my group of friends used to refer to it as the mangled monster which is actually it's almost unpleasant yet it veers into a sort of area of beauty which is really hard to describe with it's all its shrieks and squalls and everything else but i think that 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 kind of epitomizes for me how they are able to make that actually quite challenging music um listenable mm -hmm. It's about the best word I can come from. It's uh, enveloping. That's really interesting that almost everything that you have said about what they did to appeal to you was based around the live experience, which uh, I guess shows quite how intense it was. And it'll be interesting if hopefully we can hear from people who were there at the time as to how much that, that tallies with what they remember as well. Because, of course, I don't have any of that, um, not having... <laughs> not having properly seen them live and so for me it all comes through enjoying the records mm. and 
yeah it's interesting again what you say about because the perception if you just ask what does spaceman 3 sound like again to to someone who's not as all enveloped as we are they'll probably describe that live experience something you know very loud and repetitive and great though that is it's not there on that much of the records okay first album it's completely like that fair enough and little bits from there on in but most of the stuff is actually fairly serene uh it's the mixture of those things that definitely um me. if i were to try to have to, to try to sum up the things that that make the music so appealing well there's a whole cast of people involved and uh they've all got th their own um good great points that i'm sure we'll talk about uh, in in the future but fundamentally it's jason pierce and pete kemper we can't avoid that they were the the ones who were who were writing the music and i think the mixture of of jason's musicality of his ability to i think pete kemper once said you know he could just pick up any stringed instrument and, and play it straight away and uh and his playing is exquisite there. His composition, because he's responsible, I think, for most of the song-based stuff of, of the early times in particular. Um, and his lyrics, which might be incredibly basic at times, but he seems to know how to use the fewest words to get across the deepest feelings, you know, really precisely. So, so that's the one side of it. But that on its own wouldn't quite do it if it's not mixed with with Pete Kemba's attitude. Now, he would. Well, he has said not he would say he has said on many occasions he's not a musician. He can barely play. So it's not to do with the fact that he's some virtuoso guitarist. But if he wasn't there, for example, you know, Jason, who primarily wrote something like Walking with Jesus, if Pete Kemba wasn't there to say and this bit we just hold that repetitive note for about as long as you think you should hold it for. And then twice as long as that, that wouldn't really have happened. And so when you listen to things on the album version of walking with Jesus, the, the gap between the sound of confusion, pause, instrumental break, the sound of love, it's the same phrase, but that chunk in the middle is just almost everyone would say that's too long but it's just right. And the same with um, on the same album in the first track on, on um, Take Me to the Other Side. The, the pauses between the verses. Uh, they're perfect. Yeah, I know. And again, it's the same thing, especially the first one. The first one's the best one because it doesn't have as much variety and it gets into the trance-like trance side of it. And it's the same sort of thing. You know, you do that pause for about as long as you should and then you do it for about that long again and then a little bit more and then you come back. And it's the combination. Of, I, I think I, I, I rather pretentiously would call it the Kemba audacity because it is. It's the audacity to say, no, no, we can just carry on a bit longer, a bit longer on this. And it, it just works. It's, it's like, it reminds me of things like um, of Warhol's art. Oh, people... You know, the people who, who look at Warhol, it's a very common thing for people to say, oh, I could have done that. Well, yeah, you could have done, but you didn't. But you didn't. Yeah. And it's the same sort of thing. Anyone could say, oh, just, just keep playing this. But but people didn't on the whole. And it, it it's just the combination of those two things. Now, look, they can obviously come up with the goods on their own. They've been doing it now for 30 years or so. And a lot of it is exquisite. But for me, it's a bit like um, Lennon McCartney. I'm never going to shy away from Beatles analogies because I'm um, very Beatles positive. You know, um, 
they they did it on their own but it was never quite what it was in the beatles and i think it's a similar sort of thing they they needed each other's they needed to sometimes even i know it feels like they're working together so much because it comes out so well but it's almost a little bit like they're working against each other's instincts to do something they wouldn't have otherwise done on their own that makes a, a whole which mm. is is better than the individual parts I, th I think also um in terms of the live thing and i found this when i was uh, listening to one of the recordings which we're going to talk about a bit later is that the actual foil between them is it it, it works perfectly because Pete provides this kind of platform uh, which Jason can just kind of completely run amok on. And you can hear yeah. Jason going all over the place. Mm. Pete is just providing this unbelievably mile wide guitar, which just takes up yeah. all the rest of the space. There's, there's no, no space left, which he's not occupied. And it just gives Jason the opportunity to kind of tear around and do all kinds of carnage. I mean, this was, uh, this is the kind of the 1988 period. Um, so they were still, kind of heavyish then uh in terms of some of the sort of recordings uh it, it's interesting what you said about how on record uh there's a great deal of contrast they bring out a record uh playing with fire which only really has a couple of noisy tracks on it and then they go out and tour and all they really play is noise you know they they weren't playing the quiet stuff when they were touring which i think took a lot of people by surprise yeah 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 i was also going to say about the gigs in terms of um people uh, around that time there were a lot of bands that people would go and see to kind of uh kind of lose their lose their minds to people like the butthole surfers were playing uh well i saw them a couple of times i mean some of them they were very extreme those gigs uh and they they really just blew your brains out and all the spaceman three gigs that i went to they were there would be people lying down around the edge of the place i mean a lot of these people were pretty out of it but uh it just seemed to be that that that's what they come there to do that they knew the kind of experience they were going to get they were going to get they were going to get an hour of uh very loud very hypnotic noise and so they did whatever they had to do and they'd lay on the floor and just absorbed it uh but that's unique i've never seen anything like that before at the early spiritualized gigs a lot of people sat down which was always rather odd and i remember that uh, as they started to gain a bit more popularity and people were standing up all the old spiritualized fans would be shouting at these people sit down sit down please <laughs> just because that's what they were used to doing it's uh very odd but uh, yeah that's something which i do remember is uh, all these kind of corpses around the place at those spaceman gigs that thing you were saying about the the live sound that that Pete Campbell would give that Jason could play around. I mean, that, that's just so core cool to it. My probably my single favorite uh, actual Spaceman Three recordings. Not even one that's been done for a proper album. It's from a practice session, and it was released on the um, semi-official, not really official at all, compilation album, "Losing Touch with Your Mind." There's mm. a rehearsal take of "Walking with Jesus" from on there. And uh, it's just extraordinary. But all Pete Kemba does is, is just the one note. But it, 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 it takes up so much of the space and it gives everyone else a chance to, to go. And it's just instantly thrilling as well. That's a, there's so many of the songs that almost as soon as they start, there's something so captivating about them. Mm. And from my point of view as well, I, the thing I like about Spaceman 3, which hasn't always been replicated in, in everyone's subsequent work, this sounds like a down point, but it's really not meant to be. It's the fact that when you've heard, say, the first 30 seconds, you know what it's going to be like. But that's not the problem. I don't want it to develop so much as to um, just to captivate in the first place. And once it's done that, you know, why, why, why would you necessarily want it to end? 
Yeah, they they find a place and it's a good place. And mm. uh, so they stay there for a bit. I mean, suicide's probably the best example of that. It's just that they just rotate, 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 mm. the same kind of thing occasionally with little kind of pits and troughs and everything else. But it is, it's just a kind of whirling noise, which they just arrive at and just keep on, keep on bashing away at. Well, one thing that we wanted to do in, in every episode was to pick um, a favourite song, uh, or not necessarily a favourite song, just any song, and, and have a, a chat about it. But we thought we'd start off with favourite ones. And so when Mark and I were emailing beforehand, uh, my original idea was, oh, we'll choose one each. And uh, I chose one. I said, oh, how about this? And then completely independently, because I don't remember this being something that we'd ever talked about before, Mark came back and said... Um, that's the one I was going to choose. <laughs> so we appear to have the same favourite Spaceman 3 song. And you've already talked a little bit about this, Mark. But I have. Back to you. What are we on about? Uh, well, as I said, the, the uh, amazing uh, emergence of Feel So Good from the uh, chaos of uh, Roller Coaster is still a moment that I remember when, uh, when, I, when I first heard it back then. Um, and uh, it's also, as many people will know, it's the only Spaceman 3 song that both Jason and Pete uh, sing vocals on together. Uh, and I, I'd never really uh, thought of Spaceman 3 is a sort of call and response band, but it's 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 almost like that, the uh, the way that those vocals work. Um, and the way that it hit me back then is that I obviously knew that there was a certain amount of drugs involved with that band, but uh, it was the music that was far more interesting than that. But this seemed to be, this song seemed to be just talking about that kind of juxtaposition of being kind of so high that everything feels so completely wonderful but at the same time they keep adding this lyric about uh, about not going to die and and you know that the, the greatest highs come with the greatest falls and potentially that they're so high that they might die and it's it's they keep kind of reminding themselves of that it's I mean, there's not a great deal of lyrics in that but it does focus on that um but there's something about Pete's sort of husky vocals and, and Jason's rather fragile vocal take on that that I mean I rather wish there'd been more songs that they both appeared on but mm. it was it was that which nailed it for me and that's what I kept going back to even if I sometimes just played the last minute of roller coaster just to get myself in that mind frame where I knew that this kind of moment of glory was uh, soon to come out and then eventually I got into roller coaster as well and everything else but for some reason that that song has always kind of stood out uh I also think it's worth mentioning the um, Spaceman 3's ability with track sequencing. Uh, if you take an album like Perfect Prescription, the second side of that, where they put Feel So Good, followed by the mangled monster, things that would be the same, and then the most blissed out hippie track in Come Down Easy. It, 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 it's just incredible. The, 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 you go from one, one mood to another, beautifully uh, timed, other they uh, uh course finish with uh, uh, Call the Doctor, which I don't know, there's something about most of Spaceman 3's albums, even recurring as well, where they where they split things up, but they got the track sequencing just right. And I think on Perfect Prescription Feels So Good was, was perfectly timed, just as it was on the EP with Walking With Jesus, where it comes out of uh, uh, the end of Roller Coaster. So uh, yeah. it's, just, it's just that song will always mean something to me and the fact it's a beautiful song anyway obviously helps i'm sure that we're going to have lots more to say about perfect description in the future we won't be able to help ourselves even if we wanted to <laughs> but i think it's 
it's interesting the version of feels so good on perfect prescription is obviously much better recorded than the the, the original b-side version it's got horns which uh, mm. makes it sound really good as well it's it's well recorded but it doesn't quite cut it for me in the same way that that original b-side does um, i would agree it, it, okay it's much more primitive you can almost hear the, the sort of ambience in the studio because it's it almost like it hasn't been properly soundproofed and it's all a little bit crackly and the vocals haven't been um completely warmed up for and that sort of thing it's, but it's i think it's going back to what you were saying about the core appeal and yeah much as i said at the beginning we don't want to bash on about drugs but that's obviously pretty central to this one it really does feel like uh that moment where everything's just worked out just right and that's what they're getting down. And I suppose it sounds a little more like that might have just really happened on the B-side than on the Perfect Prescription version, which perhaps sounds a little bit more too polished in that respect. Mm. Um, but it, yes, that, that's the wonder. Even down the, the, the strumming near the beginning, there's a little bit where Jason pauses and then gets back into it, almost like he lost his fingering for a moment. But it just adds to it. It's just, yeah, keep going. Mm. You know, I know things are quite relaxed at the moment. Keep it going. Um, but what you said also about the, the dual meaning of it, that didn't hit me until a bit later, because um, at first I just loved it for what it was. And like you say, of course, the, the, the dual lead vocal lines. I mean, I think there is a song or two where there's backing vocals from one of the others on, on the other's songs, but nothing which has them both up front and like this does. Uh, and it was for me, it was just that, yeah, everything's kicked in as the title suggests. That's what the song's about. But it was when the uh, US reissue of Taking Drugs on Bomp came out that had uh, Chris Barras's liner notes uh, where it would say a few a few words about each piece. And I distinctly remember I was it was such a moment that struck me. I remember it so clearly. I bought the CD from uh, a nice little um, shop in Brighton. I'm very lucky living in this area. We had quite a lot of lovely record shops around that time. And they seemed to know that there were Spaceman fans in the area. So we'd always get these things quite quickly. And then afterwards, walking around town, and uh, my wife and I had gone into a little shop and she was looking for, I can't remember what, earrings or scarves or something. It was a nice little alternative boutique there. And I was standing at the side reading the liner notes. And I got this bit worried about Phil because suddenly it said about the lyrics to the I ain't going to die today when one of the spacemen having overindulged and, and, and really was in trouble, basically. And I just remember feeling literally shaken, thinking, fuck, yes, that is what it's about as well, isn't it? And as you say, therefore, it's that line between the serenity and the danger, which really is fundamental to a lot of what they did. But there yeah, it all but, is but in they, this one track. But they convey it so well, I think, in that. Yeah. Uh, I think also the, the fact that I mentioned Jason's fragile vocal, but Pete sounds like he's really close to the microphone. And there's a couple of lines where uh, the, the, the kind of sound of his voice kind of really takes over the music as he like you know feels so good like that's just really getting getting the feeling across well there you go that's our slightly inarticulate attempt to try and say what it was that that, that we both appeals to us both so much about that song um the original b-side of walking with jesus still has a very big chance for not only being my favorite song but also favorite recording i mean sometimes there are songs which um which you know are, are very special ones, but they might not be realised in in the best ways. But that first 
one is it's, it's it's everything we said about it the sort of fragility and 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 not being a perfect technical recording but the atmosphere mm. is just right i do think as i say as I said earlier that recently that uh, 1987 walking with jesus rehearsal might have just pipped it for me but not necessarily as a song although that is of course another really strong one and one that hopefully we'll talk about sometime soon Well, we've been priming ourselves for today by going back and listening to a live recording because something else I think we'd like to try and do every time is pick a live recording and, and have a chat about it. Probably something that you're going to be stuck with with me a bit more than Mark because um, I just can't seem to reach the end of my patience for listening to the same songs played again and again in increasingly poor recordings. They're, they're just great to listen to. But um, we, we picked one that that's very special to both of us um and unlike quite a lot of space and three recordings the quality is also extremely good um so which recording are we going to talk about today mark we're going to talk about the rose club in cologne which is i uh is it the 11th of january 88 something like that it is the first date on that um fairly long european tour (laughs) no i was going to say i my first baseball gig was at the very very end of that when they came back to the uk that's right uh, just as uh pete and roscoe were departing the band yeah um so this was the first date on that European tour and something that hadn't really occurred to me until I was reading a, an interview from the time that I think Pete Camber said, it will always be Pete Camber, he, he did, you know, you could you could digest all of the lines that any of the other members of the band said in any of the interviews at the time down to a couple of paragraphs. Um, so, uh, you know, it's almost always going to be him that said it. But he said something like, you know, we're going on tour soon and I never really clicked me. He said we'd not been on tour before. And sort of right really they played a lot of gigs but they was very rarely up to this point one after the other there was a a huge amount of a couple here and a couple there and whatever so this was the first big excursion okay they'd done what six dates in europe about a year earlier and lots lots of gigs around the uk but they were usually just oh let's go back to london and do a gig at the clarendon and and various and manchester was quite a popular place and of course lots of other midlands ones but this was the first big uh, long tour and it was demanding and uh, it, it uh, was a bit of an endurance test for many people but this they being... must have must have set it all up themselves the idea of these guys in the, their early 20s booking these dates across europe and i know doing it's it funny. Achieving well it. Uh, i'm gonna really reveal my the depths of my my sadness here i haven't told you this previously mark i recently um got a blank map of europe and plotted all the venues to work out what the logistics were like in terms of how they would have had to travel around this one's not actually as bad as the 89 one which is incredible when you, the distances they had to travel between some days occasionally but yeah i it, it it obviously was a bit of an endurance test, but this was the first gig. So hopefully everyone's still fresh and primed. Now there was a bit of background to it because um, it was only when um, the band arrived at the venue that most of them became aware that the promoter of the tour had uh, promoted it as the Sonic Boom Tour. So uh, instantly there's a little bit of feeling of, uh, isn't this all a little bit uh, based around one of us? Now Pete Kemba claims not to have uh, known about this in advance and maybe that's true. Although it is worth saying that the um, promoter of the tour um, had a company called Boom Productions 
so it might have just seen a way to promote themselves as much as uh, as linking it into the band um anyway the way this has been described is that everyone yeah basically jason in particular shrugged it off let's just play a good gig and um and it is an extraordinary gig i think to be honest I mean, what, what do you think some of your highlights are uh <laughs> Even for the way it starts, when Pete comes on and he says, uh, I, I think it was very crowded at the venue, and he says, uh, it's just you and me here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> this rather cynical tone rather sets the tone for everything. Uh, there's there's several great moments. I love the fact that the whole thing is bookended by two renditions of Come Together. Both, uh, they're rather different from each other. But it's, it's almost like uh, by the time they get to the encore, They've only really just got warmed up because the encores are just on another level on this gig. Yeah. And the closing version of, of Come Together is the best version of Come Together that I've heard. It's 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 so aggressive and it's so intense. Uh, but there's 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 a lot of great moments uh, mm. between that. Um, the version of Roller Coaster, I think, kind of really epitomizes the Spaceman 3 sound when it kind of starts to take off. Uh, and you, you can you can hear Pete and Jason like two perfect pieces of jigsaw that this this partnership that they had of jason taking the lead and pete just occupying everything else that jason's not occupying I, I, it's just remarkable it's it's a bit of an unusual gig in some respects because uh when they do little dollars their first encore which is which is really powerful version uh pete says in the introduction we haven't played little doll for quite a while and you do hear somebody shout it out. Yeah. So it's like, they, well, we'll do a request. <laughs> if it is a request, they turn on a dime and do it pretty much immediately. It's breathtaking. Um, it is a great version. But, I, I mean, I know there's a huge number of gigs that we don't have recordings for, so we don't really know what's happened in the meantime. But the last time I can find that they played it before that night was back in um, March 87. So it's about 10 months, as far as I can make out since they played it, which definitely fits in with what he says about not having played it for a while. Um, and the OD catastrophe that follows it, directly follows it, they link them together, yeah. is, is, is stunning as well. Uh, there's, when people think of Spaceman 3 as a live band, I think there's become a tendency to think of the, um, the 89 version as the definitive live experience. And I think that's largely down to... The, the technical skill of of Will and, and Johnny, who are the most amazing rhythm section. And there's no doubt about it. They probably are the most technically proficient people who were ever in the band. And listening to those recordings is quite something. I'm not trying to... The next sentence is not intended to do those guys down because they are what an incredible run of gigs they had in 89. But I think the consequence of them being quite so technically proficient is that people tend to overlook the Pete Bain Roscoe backup, which isn't as technically proficient. I'm not going to pretend that they're virtuosos, but they've got the feeling just mm. in the same way that Pete Kemba's got the feeling. And actually some of the bass playing on this is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's excellent. That that the, the encore of Come Together, I think that Pete Bain and Roscoe yeah. are just on fire for that. Yeah, yeah. So um, for anyone who might have fixated a little bit on the latter incarnation, well, you know, well done. There's loads to enjoy there, but check this one out if you want to check this one out then um the whole gig is on youtube and i'll put a link um next to wherever you found this podcast that you can do or just search for it yourself um 
Uh, and it's a great recording as well. I gather it's from the master tape or one of the master tapes. I think it's more than one recording of this gig doing the rounds because, of course, it did get released on a bootleg uh, called All Fucked Up, but um, of which I know pretty much nothing. I have no idea who put it out, um, but obviously just made up that the label they put it out on just to do this one thing. It's the sort of thing you used to see in, in record fairs a lot when you go in and people have pressed up lots of their own bootleg things. Uh, but unfortunately, the whatever recording's been used for that one isn't isn't really very good. It's quite hissy. It hasn't got the bass end. It's um, yeah. If you've only heard it because of that, then you haven't really had a proper representation of, of what the night was like. No, so the YouTube one is the one to hear, I think. Yeah, really, definitely. One thing that I noticed when I was checking it out before we talked about it was that, um, and this is not unusual throughout all of the times that they played roller coaster, especially in the later years, um, they get so wrapped up in the instrumental repetition as it gets builds and gets more and more powerful that I think they forget that they haven't really finished the song because that song's got three verses and they only do one. They only do the first one. There's no, That's right. there's no return to it. There's no um, after your trip, life opens up or whatever the second yeah. verse is as well. It doesn't seem to matter. I mean, it's, it's great that this time... I think you're right about the second version of Come Together being the, the better one, and it is really powerful. I'm very glad that it's there. In a way, though, I think it's a slight shame. This is the first gig that I'm aware of where there is the same song being played more than once. And although it does work pretty well this night, it's not something I'm a tremendously big fan of. And... I mean, this is all academic for me because I've only got recordings to go on. But I think if I had gone to see my favourite band who've got the most incredible back catalogue, OK, not massive, but there's quite a lot on there. Uh, if I were to have Revolution twice rather than something else I could have had, I might have been a little, felt a little shortchanged. Is there, is there not a bit uh, just before they play Come Together and Pete says, uh, well, there's a lot of things we could have played tonight. We could... We could sit yeah. around all night talking about those. Well, indeed, like he, he's quite right. He does acknowledge it, which he never does again. So I wonder if this is the first time they played a track twice and that he felt they needed a, a, a little inspiration. Because after to be this, Revolution. It, Revolution tends to be the 189. It was, it was quite unusual for it not to be played twice. Um, I think probably it's just an example of them, as you were saying earlier, doing what they wanted to do in the same way that they looked how they wanted to look and sat down if they wanted to sit down. And if that was a song that they enjoyed playing, probably, yeah. let's face it, if Pete enjoyed playing, then uh, then they'll play it again. And and why not, really? I mean, you, you've got to accept the whole deal, really. If you sign up to uh, to follow Spaceman 3, you've got to sort of do it the way they like to do it, as, as much as you'd like it to do it. So, yeah. Quite quite fun bits of banter isn't there with the audience shouting stuff there out. are indeed it's just it's just quite amusing but walking with it, jesus that's right jesus jesus isn't with us tonight yes all that sort of stuff but why uh, not <laughs> solo uh, gigs there's um there's also I, i've been going back to the encore there's i think that little doll from that was the thing that probably stands out for me as the as the great moment with Odie catastrophe after it but mm. uh it, it it kind of epitomizes the way that the sound they create sounds like it's just going to fall apart disintegrate come off the rails and yet they they just keep it going and mm. it's obviously 
it's a it's a finely crafted sound that they just knew how to do it but there are moments during little doll where it's it's wobbling to the point where you think they're not going to be able to carry it and they just they just keep it going I, well, I don't quite know how they do it i wonder if they talked about that afterwards because as we've already said and as pete says in his introduction they hadn't played it for a long time before that night and although we've not got recordings of the whole european tour there's quite a lot of it and it never crops up again so it mm. might be the last time they ever played it um, it's a yeah. shame yeah, well, maybe because of that, you know, we could we we were only just able to keep that together. I don't know. <laughs> hey, guys, if you're out there, let us know if you remember. You know, we we're always delighted to hear from you. <laughs> Well, as I say, you're probably going to be stuck with me with live recordings in the future, so as not to oblige Mark to have to listen to increasingly creaky and crackly old recordings. Uh, a flip side to that, Mark has uh, got a great knowledge of bands which will be of interest to Spaceman 3 fans. Not necessarily because they sound like them, sometimes they might do, but bands which have got the same sort of appeal, uh, very much the same sort of audience overlap to them. So, Mark, tell us about someone who you've been thinking about recently? Well, I think the one that's probably worth mentioning around uh, from, from around the same time would be Galaxy 500, which uh, I imagine a lot of Spaceman 3 fans will know these guys anyway. Uh, Dean Wareham was the guitarist and vocalist originally from New Zealand, but moved to the States and uh, set up the band with uh, the rhythm section Damon and Naomi. Uh, played for a number of years. They released, I think, three albums um all of which are worth tracking down i mean the, the music is is excellent their, their whole catalog is fantastic uh another fairly acrimonious split after their third album which was called this is our music came out in 1990 but that's probably the album as a spaceman three fan that i would head for there's one particular song called summertime which is it's not exactly a tribute track but if you watch any interviews with Galaxy 500 around that time, they name check Spaceman 3 quite a lot. Uh, there's no question that there was some influence in Summertime, which is, uh, to me, an absolutely wonderful song, uh, some form of tribute, but with enough Galaxy 500 in there to keep it interesting for their own fans as well. Um, that's the, that whole album is well worth getting. Uh, but around that time, there was a point where I don't know whether they would have got on tour together, but uh, Dean was going on about people like Yona Tengo, uh, Spaceman 3 as being kind of contemporary bands, which uh, Yona Tengo is another band that we could talk about. Um, but I think that Galaxy 500 would certainly be one which I would check out. I, I only managed to catch them live once. Uh, I think I was very fortunate. It was at uh, the Yulu venue, which at that point was my favourite venue in London. It had a really good sound system, uh, nice bar, nice people, just a really good place to go. Uh, and that night they actually had uh, Kramer. Uh, on the mixing desk, the guy who runs the who ran the Shibby Disc label was worked with all sorts of people over the years. So you had one of the best uh, engineers on the desk that night, and it was one of those everything just fell into place: the sound, the music, the set, everything. And uh, before I knew it, they split up, and that was the end of that. But uh, they're certainly a band as a Spaceman Three fan. I would definitely go and check out. It's worth saying that um, the organisation Sonic Cathedral, who have a big emphasis on shoegazy things, but also very much big Spaceman 3 fans, um, they put out a fanzine a little while ago, which you can still buy a bundle of three sort of poster fanzines, only six quid if you're in the UK. And there's a thing in there where um, Dean Wareham and Pete Kember chat about 
that time, the end of Spaceman 3 and what Galaxy 500 were doing at the time. It's only a short piece, but it's, it's well worth um, well worth getting hold of. They are, of course, good good friends now, Dean and Pete. Mm. Uh, they work together. Uh, Pete's produced some of Dean's music, some of Dean and Britta, uh, this and that. In fact, uh, that's that's another very durable musician, Dean Wareham. A lot of his music up to this day is still worth checking out. You still feel some of that vibe that he had with Galaxy 500 from over 30 years ago. Well worth a look. Well, hope you've enjoyed some of the stuff we've chatted about. I mean, we've got ideas for the future. Um, if you've got anything that you want to suggest to us, please let us know. Not quite sure at the moment how regular these will be, but we hope that we'll be back again at some point soon. When we have enough in interesting material to talk about. Yeah. Until then, thanks for coming. Many thanks. Goodbye. We've been Spaceman Pod. Bye.